Jack Spirito with the Survival Podcast. Welcome to an episode of Friday Flashbacks. After 15 years and hundreds of interview shows, we decided to run them as flashbacks every Friday, beginning with the oldest of them and going forward. There's a tremendous library of wisdom in all the great interviews we've done over the years, so sit back and enjoy. Whether this is your first time or even your second time around with today's episode, I'm sure you will enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And remember, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get access to over 70 awesome discount codes on products and services you likely already use. Things like seeds, cannabis products, food storage items, custom roasted coffee, and even cool stuff like ammo and moonshine stills and more. So support the show, get all your money back and more. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. Now let's get into today's Friday flashback. And today we are flashing back to what was originally episode 351, an interview with Bill Wilson from Midwest Permaculture. It was originally recorded on January the 7th, 2010. I want to now introduce uh, Bill Wilson. Bill is the founder of Midwest Permaculture based up in Illinois. Um, They offer training, uh, hands-on workshops, certification, and consulting on permaculture. Bill, thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. My pleasure, Jack. Good to have me on here. Um, Bill, I, I mean, I know who you are. I actually kind of kicked around the idea of taking your webinar course for like the last couple of months, and then finally decided to do it as part of my one of my New Year's goals. And I've been taking that course now. Uh, but some of our listeners may not be familiar with you and Midwest Permaculture. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into this stuff, how you, you know, how and why you founded Midwest Permaculture, and what you guys are all about? Uh, well, sure. Um... It's actually a story that sort of parallels yours, Jack. Um, um, I'm in my uh, mid to late 50s now, and uh, when I was 40 years old, as my wife said, I kind of had a meltdown or a life-changing experience. Um, I was just tired of working for other people and and um, never making quite enough money to really, you know, get it on our feet. And um, what I really wanted to do was find my life's work. I've just always felt like, you know, there's more to life than just working for somebody else and or even having a business that maybe you're really not into, you know, just a way to make money. And I just wanted to do work that w- was more, well, I guess you would say heartfelt. I mean, it was just an expression of who I am, let's put it that way. And my real interest is in um, community and sustainability and finding ways to live on this planet so we don't consume it. How do you live on this planet so we take care of it? So I couldn't figure out. I mean, I went, you know, to the to the papers repeatedly, and I'm looking for, you know, one ad. You know, here's the job for Bill Wilson, but it never showed up. And um, so I finally shorted out, and I ended up uh, uh, getting a CDL license and started driving semi, because as long as I had to figure out a way to make a living, at least I would have some time to myself, like you driving to work every day. I mean, can I be more productive driving an hour and ten, fifteen minutes, whatever it is? 
And so um, so I started driving truck. I figured I'd do it for a year or two. I figured out what I needed to do with my life, and then I would quit and go do that. Well, it took me 13 years to, to figure it out. But well, it took me 10 years to figure it out and another three years to get out of the truck. So so what it amounted to is I just got very clear that, you know, what I'm interested in, I kind of I like the, the byline on your, on your uh, website, you know, preparing for, uh, you know, the coming changes, whether they happen or not, or however you express that. Um, I feel the same way. We don't know what the future holds for us. We have a lot of predictions, and there's a lot of people out there who, you know, say they know what's happening. And But, you know, it could be a very different situation in one part of the state than the other, in one part of the country to the other. We don't know what the coming changes are going to be like. But I do believe there will be some changes. But even if there weren't, even if somehow this fantasy world we've created where we just think that, you know, money goes on forever and the... Um, um, the, the things that we need to provide for our life, um, you know, resources that they go on forever, even if somehow that seemed to go on, um, there's no question in my mind, uh, isn't there a more authentic way to live? Isn't there a way to live where we're not destroying the planet, even if there seems to be an unending supply of energy and resources? So um, so that's how I, I went down this path. And community, sustainable living, uh, as I did that research, I discovered this concept of uh, permaculture. I'd heard, I'd heard of it years before, but when I sat down and read an article in Permaculture Activist about what permaculture was, I just said, oh, well, that's it. I mean, that's really what it's about. How do we create permanent cultures? So um, my wife and I um, found a, a hosted a gentleman from California to come in and teach a design certification course. This is a 72-hour curriculum that Bill Mullison, the founder of Permaculture, created uh, or developed, and it's sort of become the standard out there in the world. If you take a PDC, you should be pretty well assured you're covering certain curriculum items that uh, Bill Mullison has outlined. And uh, we brought in a fellow, actually David Bloom, uh, maybe you're familiar with David, he's written that book recently, Alcohol Can Be a Gas. Yes, yes. And so we brought David in, and it was, uh, I took that training, I was in 2004, and I basically came out of that training, I said, well, this is my life's work, so how do I, how do I do this? And um, so I continued to work, but part of the process is I found some gentlemen in the Midwest who also knew something about permaculture, invited them to host a design course, and that was the beginning of uh, Midwest permaculture. The response was strong enough that um, Becky and I just made uh, the decision to make a leap, and I just walked away from my job and, and the truck, and we just started doing it full time. I think what makes our trainings a little bit unique, uh, or I'm sure it makes them unique for most trainings, the design course is 72 hours. It's typically taught over 13, 14, maybe 15 days. And one of the challenges that we had with our instructors is they couldn't find two weeks at the same time to teach a training. So we, uh, Becky and I, had had some experience in offering webinars and doing education over the telephone or through the computer, and it's, it can be very effective. And so we suggested to our teachers, let's do some of that ahead of time, and then we can, you know, by working sun up to sundown or, you know, from like 8 or 9 in the morning until 9 or 10 at night, we can get the balance of the curriculum in in one week. And uh, we ended up, we, we were hoping to get 12 students to our first design course, and we ended up with uh, 30, 39 students. Awesome. And almost to the... Yeah, almost to the person, they said, the reason I'm here is because I could find the money, but I couldn't find two weeks. 
That's awesome, and I can so, certainly um, understand that. Even even now, kind of moving into a realm where I have a lot more control of my own life, two weeks is a lot of time for anybody to find. And I would imagine some of the people who want to take these courses um, are already doing a lot of these things, and they have you know maybe an agricultural concern going on. And two weeks is a long time to walk away from anything, so it's probably been a real uh, help to a lot of folks. Part of why I found you guys was I found so much information on permaculture, and I know the design concepts are the same, but there is a difference in what you do in the tropics versus in kind of more temperate climates. So my initial search was, who can I find that's doing this, that knows what they're doing, that has to deal with the fact that it actually freezes and snows where I live? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's kind of hard when you read Mollison's work. You know, he says, okay, bananas, bananas here, and the guavas over there, and you're thinking, okay, now what's the, sea? What's the equivalent up here, you know, uh, to the banana tree? Um, so that's exactly right. Hey, I can grow my it, it interesting. They grow pawpaws so and they taste like a banana, but they take a lot longer to produce anything as well. Oh, a lot longer, and they don't produce nearly as much as a banana does. Exactly. So, you know, it's it's kind of an exotic fruit, and which is why it is as expensive it is. But it's also a great crop then in a permaculture design you know, to uh, incorporate pawpaws. So uh, when they finally do kick in, you've got a really good uh, income stream there. Sure. But you have to plan. That's the thing about permaculture. I mean, if if our parents you know, have been designing permaculture landscapes 30 or 40 years ago, they would be healthy, mature systems now, and you'd be able to see food forests in action. Sure. Um, where you do very little planting, but rather you become um, a harvester. And um, I, 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 I have a fr- yeah, I have a friend in um, um, Lori's in, in Peoria, Illinois, and um, she's just a young woman who just got the bug, and she was living uh, at her mother's house, and she transformed. You know, it's a lot and a half, and she she there's all grass, you know, and a few bushes, typical suburban thing, suburban thing. And over a period of three years, there's not a blade of grass left. She had over 300 varieties of plants in her yard, put in a pond, put in an outdoor shower, rain barrels. Um, some water catchment, just a whole variety of plants, a lot of different types of plant guilds. And she said what was fascinating for her is she said it was a tremendous amount of work, but she said starting year four, I started harvesting in April different types of plants and herbs that would come up and certainly the asparagus and then some of the early berries. And she says I started harvesting in April, and it was the year that I started spending more time harvesting and preserving food that I spent in the garden working on growing the food. And that's the goal of a permaculture design. You know, the apple tree that sits outside our window here or anywhere that was planted 20-some years ago, you know, I don't do anything to that apple tree. I don't weed it or, you know, take care of it. or I mean, I may do a little pruning or something. But it's just year after year we just get this abundant crop of apples. And uh, multiply that times 300 other varieties of plants and you get an idea of the potential bounty in creating a permaculture design garden. You know, Bill, on that note, before I kind of go back to what we had planned as far as an interview, um, I'm actually working on a, a project, a computer-based project, and we're having some programming difficulties I'm hoping to get through soon. But we're calling it the 10% project, and it really fits into what you were just talking about. And what our goal is going to be is not everybody's going to build a food forest or a seven-layer system or even a three-zone system in their backyard, but I want to get as many people involved as I can. So we're starting this project called the 10% project, and the goal of that is to pres- uh, replace – 
one in ten ornamental trees, bushes, vines, and plants with something that produces food. And I got this idea driving through all the suburbs around where I live, all these, you know, McMansions and houses on top of each other, and seeing just tree after tree after tree, fruit, you know, Bradford pears, uh, the, the, the fruitless ones are like huge down here. And I'm like, it, you know, it, it's an arrogant people to me that have gone out of their way to genetically modify uh, a plant that does produce food so that it won't produce food because they consider it lawn litter. So that's kind of a goal we have long term is to is to get as you know some people will become really with the bug like you just mentioned this lady but get everybody doing a little bit if we get everybody doing a little bit we can make a major difference exactly and you probably have the same experience I had and my experience in gardening was pretty traditional just go out and every spring and just plant annual stuff and there's certainly a lot of enjoyment to that and there's certainly a place for annual agriculture I mean let's just face it you know you and I aren't just going to live off of uh, dandelions and and sunchokes and yeah, <laughs> cattails. You know, we 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 are certain foods we're used to, and we need to grow those. And I think in the temperate climate zone, we also ought to be looking at greenhouses. There's just too many people up north here for us to think we're going to create local food systems and uh, preserve it all. Uh, there's something about having fresh lettuce, some fresh vegetables in the winter that's really important. But um, what I've discovered in transforming our permaculture yard, it's only been really three years we've been working on it. Um, is is I'm, I'm my palate is expanding. Um, I'm becoming more creative. I'm learning a lot more about different types of plants. I still don't know that much I mean, compared to an average person. I probably do, but there's you know that when you start studying the plant kingdom, oh my gosh, you're, you've got a lifetime journey before you. But it doesn't take that much knowledge to start playing with this stuff and to start experimenting. And um, you know, in our, our front yard. Um, had uh, in, in terms of edible plants that we are familiar with. I'm not talking about clover, dandelion, but just things that we're familiar with. We had uh, nothing in our front yard as of you know three or four years ago. Now we probably have 25 varieties of edible plants in our front yard. Um, everything from pear to plum to sunchoke to um, some annual vegetables we put in. Um, that um, and they don't grow in huge abundance yet. They're all still kind of small plants and getting it and getting started. But it's fun to get in my front yard now. We've got rain gardens out there. We put in some paths, and it's actually a very restful place to be. It used to be just a very sunny spot. I never spent any time in my front yard. As a matter of fact, we, we, on our website, on the home page there, as you scroll down, I've got links to pictures of our front yard and how we transformed it. But but now, you know, Becky and I go out there, and, I mean, we just look forward to going out there and putzing every every morning in the uh, summer and fall. And without I a guess lawnmower, we're working. I, yeah, without a lawnmower, we we don't use a lawnmower in the front anymore. We use a little weed whip when it gets a little bit too ambitious. We don't have uh, um, animals yet, chickens or anything. But um, but it's it's incredibly um, inviting place to be. And now we have neighbors coming over and sitting in our front yard with us and having conversations, and we're growing food at the same time. That's so really it's, cool. It's, um, it's a different way of different different approach. I, one of the things I wanted to kind of talk to you about while you're here today, you know, just by the name of my show, you know that my my show attracts a, a diverse array of people from uh, from the person that, that is really into more of the ecological things like we're talking about today to people that are more of a uh, it's just a plain old good old fashioned self sufficiency self reliance mindset. You know, I, I guess we all call ourselves modern survivalists, kind of as, a, as an umbrella, and we do try to focus on making our lives better today, but we also are 
aware of how fragile the human condition is, how many things that could go wrong out there. And a lot of the reason that we do a lot of things we do is to not just be better off today, but if something goes wrong, be able to weather through the storm, so to speak, better. And, I mean, I had one guy toward early on when I started doing a lot of gardening and, and a little bit on permaculture because I didn't know that much about it yet. At the time, I thought permaculture was I plant some trees. I mean, that was pretty much it. And uh, But one yeah, day right. he emailed me and he said, what are you going to do? Teach me to make a pie next. And I said, well, I might, but I'll be pie while you're eating, you know, your last can of sardines. Um, (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I mean, permaculturists, I think, have their eyes wide open to the dangers that are out there in our society long term. You know, can you talk about some of the things that are out there and how permaculture maybe helps to prevent them, or if they occur, the people that are deep into these practices, let's say you spend the next 10 years of your life making whatever you have, be it a suburban lot or or 20 acres, into a food-producing machine, how that helps you get through maybe some of the things we might have to face in the future. I mean, we don't want to face them, but we might. Yeah. We have, um, you know, I look at a you know three-headed dragon approaching us, regardless, um, you know, we, we can talk about uh, global warming and, and the pros and cons or the merits and the justification of that, or um, even of the economy. I mean, I think we've created a, what I call it a Walt a Disney World economy. I mean, it's really based on the fact that we think it's just ever, always going to continue to expand, and I think we've seen the first big signs of, of it falling apart. But um, if you just look at, you know, what it takes to be a, you know, a human being on a planet, and we have to remember, you know, whether we're spiritual beings or not or however you want to look at us as emotional beings, but we're also, we, however you look at it, we do walk around in an animal body. Our bodies are part of the animal kingdom, and they are incredibly dependent upon some very important things, you know, air, water, and soil. And we are destroying those resources. So it's, you know, it's pretty, we're uh, destroying the nest that supports us, and yet we don't seem to be able to see it as a culture. We certainly have people like yourself and me and others, you know, waving the flag and saying, hey, we've got to stop. But as a culture, we're not not aware of it. But just to look at a couple of those, um, you know, we think energy is this endless supply, and um, I've read all these debates, and I've seen Richard Heinberg speak several times and talking about there's, and pretty much they agree there's like two trillion barrels of oil on the planet. There's some geologists who say that's very too conservative when you consider all the oil resources. There's 2.7 trillion barrels of oil on the planet. And, and I'm sitting here, you know, call me a truck driver, whatever, but I can't get my head wrapped around what does two trillion barrels look like. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, you know, if I had it all in front of me, you know, would it, would it fill the Indian Ocean? Would it fill the Mediterranean Sea? All the oil on the planet right in front of me, what would it look like? And the only body of water I'm familiar with is the Great Lakes. So I said, well, I'm going to go find out how much water is in the Great Lakes system. And so, you know, how do you do that? Um, well, I sat down on my computer. I typed in how many you know, barrels of oil, how many, how many gallons of water in the Great Lakes system. And in seven seconds, I got a number. It's 143 trillion barrels or the equivalent of 143 trillion barrels of water in the Great Lakes system. It's in the quadrillions. The number of gallons is in the quadrillions. And I converted it by dividing uh, by 40, the number of barrels. Well, if there's two or three trillion barrels of oil on the planet and there's 143 trillion barrels of water in the Great Lakes system, it turns out that all the oil on the planet 
will not even fill the little finger off the Great uh, off of um, the Great Lakes uh, Green Bay uh, Lake Michigan, Green Bay Wisconsin. That little teeny finger that comes in off of off of Wisconsin. That's all the oil on the planet would fit in that one spot. You know that well, blows that me away. Point. That blew me away when I, I was. I took your your like I said. I'm actually in the middle of your webinar course right now, and you do the first. Oh, that's on the webinar. Yeah, yeah. You did the first one, and I heard that. And peak oil is a big topic among folks such as myself, and I think it's really debatable how long we have. But I think the the person that doesn't accept the fact that there there's an end, and there's also you know peak's not the end. Peak is when the the desire for product. Permanently exceeds the capacity of production, and that put that in yeah. perspective for me in a way that it's that I've never experienced before. Because I've, I've been to that area, and yeah, Green Bay. When you stand there and you look at it, it looks pretty big. But when you think that's it, that's all the oil that exists in the world, it, it becomes a lot more finite in your your mindset. And I like the way you did that. I've never heard of anybody deconstructing it that way before. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's what I have to do for myself because if I don't understand something, how do I teach it or explain it to somebody sure. else? You know. But then when you when you consider that that's just oil, and we think, well, what the heck? We got coal. You know, they say they have five five hundred years supply, but um, that's only if the oil continues to hold up. So, but it doesn't really matter whether we're talking about coal or oil or natural gas or even uranium. All of those are finite resources. Sure. Put them all in one place, and we keep chipping away at the pile, and the pile is going to be gone. And, 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 and it doesn't matter if it's in one generation or two generations or in five generations. They're who the hell are we, excuse my language, who the heck are we at this point in the last two or three generations to say we own the planet, we're going to consume the whole damn, excuse me, not Don't worry about it. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's <laughs> acceptable language on the survival podcast. Okay, <laughs> we're, we're going to consume the whole darn thing and leave our great-grandchildren to nothing. Let them yeah. figure out their own problems. They'll develop, some, technology will save us, we'll develop some kind of a free energy device. And now, now thinking, about technology, will, you know, thinking about technology, here's another one that I've always been concerned with. I'd like to get your opinion on uh, of threats that we face in the future is the stuff that's being done with genetically modifying our seed supply implanting genes into products, and Monsanto says they've never actually released this gene, but we do know they've created a Terminator gene to protect their patents that tells the next generation of seed, don't reproduce yourself, and if you don't spray it with a certain chemical at a certain time, it produces sterile seed, and they're doing that with corn. Corn pollinates for miles and miles on the wind. Once you let something like that out into the biosphere, you can't contain it. It's not like a dog. You put it in a fenced-in yard, and the dog can't get out. If it's if it's out, it's out, and it, it it can go for generation after generation, and it might go dormant and resurge later. I see this as a huge threat and a big reason to have the diversity that you're talking about—hundreds of plants, species in in one small garden. What are what are your thoughts on GMOs, and you know what kind of threat they pose? Oh, I feel exactly the same way you do. What we're doing here is we're playing with a type of science that's so advanced that um, uh, it's beyond our ability to perceive what the consequences of it are. That's the bottom line. Exactly. And um, uh, we, we, when we look at what's possible in just terms of already in terms of general uh, diversity and uh, what the plant kingdom can do without us doing any gen- genetic 
genetic work. It's phenomenal what plants will do anyway. We don't need to uh, change uh, the genetic code of things in order to get the kind of bounty that we need. You know, we know people who've done experiments, um, John Jevons' work, uh, you know, how to grow more food than you ever thought possible on less land than you ever, whatever the book title is. Um, it's called biodynamic, uh, biointensive farming. Um, uh, the biodynamic farming community, um, uh, the work that they've done, uh, Steiner's work from, uh, you know, 7,500 years ago, but they've done these test plots where they just said, let's just, you know, let's take care of the soil, let's use the best knowledge we have working with nature, and let's see how much we can push these systems, how much food can we grow in a small space. And they've come up with experiments where they've actually developed, um, produced up to 10 times what annual uh, perm- what annual excuse me, annual industrial agriculture can produce per per acre, okay? Sure. Now, they didn't do it sitting on the back of a John Deere tractor, and they didn't do it with chemicals and plows. They did it by hand. The point is, we work with nature, nature will work with us, and we can produce all the food we need for ourselves and everybody on this planet. It is physically possible. And I think it but has a lot to, to do... the tractor. Yeah, and it has a lot to do with... I'm understanding more and more as I do more and more research and study with permaculture about the importance of edges. And if we think about a great big field of corn, there are some edges there, but they're not very productive edges. I've got four edges around the square. I've got the edge where the corn plant bisects the ground, and I've got the ground bisecting the whole system. But that's not a productive system. That's not a system that produces surplus. And what I've I've read from Mollison's writing is it's in the edges that nature provides surplus. And the, if we could build yeah. these systems, instead of trying to make 40 acres of corn, if we make 40, 40, and look at what people do with an acre. And I think, oh, my God, what would these people do if you gave them 40 acres of productive land? And the reality is they probably let 30 of it do whatever it wanted to with itself, and they do more with 10 of it <laughs> than the farmer can do with, with, with 40. And that, that 30 yeah. growing naturally would support the 10 much better. I, I, you know, right. and, and, and what's really important about, about what you're saying there, Jack, is not so much what it is we can produce off the land, but what we're doing with or for the land. Sure. An industrial agriculture system. And listen, and I'm not, I'm not cutting or degrading or putting down industrial agriculture. I mean, my neighbors, they're all industrial farmers. Sure. These are some of the neatest, nicest people you're ever going to meet. It's not the person. How many of us drive cars? How many of us heat our houses with natural gas or, or, uh, electricity or whatever. I mean, we're all in this system together. Agreed. But farming from the beginning, you know, when we started this process of annual agriculture where you disturb the soil or you turn the soil, we have not found a way to turn the soil without eventually losing it. Even when you put additives back on and you cover green cover crops, if you continue to turn the soil every year over a period of generations or hundreds of years, you will lose that topsoil. Right now in the United States, uh, we've been improving our, our track record at the time of the, of the Depression and the Dust Bowl years. We were losing one inch of topsoil every eight years. Now we've cut that down to about one inch every 35 years. But still, um, in the United States, if we were to take all the soil that we lose, you know, our number one export in the United States, in terms of volume, somebody says it's probably jobs, and it's, it's not, uh, that could be. But in terms of volume, truckloads and um, shiploads, the number one export of the United States is not corn and it's not soybeans. It's topsoil. Wow. If you take all the topsoil that we lose on an annual basis in the United States in one year and you put it all into rail cars, that train, the length of that train, would wrap around the equator 
seven times. It's staggering. That's how much topsoil we lose every year just in the United States. And there's places where they don't have an inch. You say we only lose an inch every 35 years now, but there's places where the topsoil is not an inch thick. Even naturally occurring topsoil is not an inch thick. We can't afford. Yeah, there's a lot of places on the planet that are not even. They don't have topsoil anymore. Everything's being planted in subsoil because the topsoil's completely gone. So this, the, the point is, is we are animals. Our bodies. Uh, we, the reason we are able to alive, be alive is because uh, the plants in the ground can absorb the carbon in the atmosphere with the use of sunlight. That's the energy source. It grabs carbon in the air, turns it into something useful, and then puts some of that carbon back in the soil, and some of it gets returned to us to be able to use for as animals, whether it be in the form of wood or food or what have you. Sure. And when we do annual agriculture, we always lose the carbon. The, the carbon content, uh, it's called the humus content in soils naturally found on a prairie or the forest run around 10 to 13 percent. In industrial farm soils in the United States, the, the humus content falls under just 1 percent. And so, so we've lost, you know, uh, 90 percent of the humus content of the soils of the United States. The other thing is the humus is the sponge in the soil. So when you get a real heavy, when you get a good rain or you get several days of rain, used to be the soil and the plants and the trees could absorb tremendous amounts of that rain and then slowly release it through the soils back into our streams or into the atmosphere. Now in a good rain, there's there's no place for the it rain to be absorbed. That's correct, and so yeah. we so we lose. So we, we we the hydrological cycle. It used to be about fifty percent of the moisture that falls from the sky it evaporates through respiration uh, through the plants and just directly off the planet, uh, or, or or moves off the surface. And the other fifty percent slowly soaks into the ground uh, and refills our aquifers. With the way we're doing farming now, because the humus content isn't there, and because we have a lot of um, um, the, the pipes underground, the um, not irrigation, the drainage tile okay. under uh, the, a lot of oh, farms yeah, 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 put yeah, the yeah, drainage yeah. tile in order to get the equipment in after a rain. Uh, the drainage tile is pulling a lot of that off now. So, so now we're actually the purposely. Yeah, that was another thing from your course. I was like, wait a minute. So we're purposely draining the moisture from the fields faster than it already drains, so we can drive the tractor on there while it's not muddy. So we're actually deplete. We're purposely taking away the early rains that would saturate the field and taking them away. I, I had never heard yeah, of that. It's not just saturating. Yeah, it's not just saturating the field. It's you know the water continues to move down and it moves through the subsoils sure. and into the water tables. But we know from you know well from wells and everything else like that. We know the yeah. wells are falling. We're using them for irrigation. So now we're changing the hydrological cycle on the planet. And we're sucking so the water out of the fossil aquifers, too. I mean, that's that I, I read that earlier right. this year, and I went, oh, my God. And I, I didn't really understand the difference, that we have these shallow aquifers that have traditionally been used. And if we don't screw things up like you're talking about them doing now, they will refill. And then we have these deeper aquifers that are like underland seas, and they don't refill. Or if they do, they refill at a timetable that's so long that we're all dead before we even think about it. Yeah. And they're sucking those things dry. The, the uh, Ogala Aquifer, there's a big one in China, they're, su- they're sucking water out of them. And when that's gone, it's gone for our lifetime and for, you know, ten more anyway. Yes, exactly. 
and that, that's why this this whole idea of growing food where we live locally and figuring out better ways to grow food, we have to do it in whole soil, and that's what permaculture is all about. Um, it's how do we create a system so that it self-fertilizes itself. We want to build topsoil every year, not lose topsoil every year. And that's part of the uh, the brilliance, too, on Mollison's observation in permaculture. He, he realized, you asked about head zones, that the prairie is pretty productive as it is. The woods are pretty productive as it is. But where the prairie meets the woods or where the stream meets the bank, that area can be two or three times more productive because you have the species of both areas coming together, and they all know that's where they can feed. And... Um, uh, in plant communities as well. Well, let's take a look at a forest canopy. Um, how much sunlight is being absorbed in the forest, or where is most of the sun being harvested? It's probably in that top um, 10 to 20 feet sure. where the trees meet the sunlight. Now, certainly the sunlight comes all the way down, and we're harvesting sunlight below, but the majority of the sunlight is harvested at, let's say, 100 to 120 feet. In the meadow... Um, or in a cornfield, uh, the solar gain or the sun that's being harvested is happening in that, you know, one foot to ten feet span, span however tall the plants are. Well, in the edge zone, well, matter of fact, the most biologically productive systems that we know of are uh, like the great oak savanna systems that are part of the Mississippi um, area here, um, all the way up and down the Mississippi, up into Canada. And this is where you have prairies and woods, prairies and woods, prairies and woods. And have you ever noticed how when you walk out of the prairie and walk into the woods, when you, where you first appear at the wooded area, this is where all the brambles and the vines and all these things grow up. So sometimes you can't even walk into the woods in there. because yeah. there's so much growth. All right? That is called an egg zone. And in permaculture, we say, well, if we know that's the most biologically productive area, why don't we grow a row of trees and then shorter trees under that and then high bushes under that, you know, like you call your seven layers, medium bushes under that, then the high, tall or uh, herbaceous layer, then the, the shallow or herbaceous layer, and then have a little bit of prairie and then start building it up again. Now what you end up with is what looks like um, a series of mountains from a profile up and down, up and down. You've got this situation where you're harvesting sunlight all over the place. As your canopy, instead of being 10 feet on the, up, up in the trees or 10 feet on the ground, you're now harvesting sunlight for 120 feet. Because you have a higher height of that tree all the way down to the ground. You're harvesting sunlight all the way down. You're getting a stacking. And that's why it can be edge, so productive. Though. Yeah. That's stacking the edge. That's correct. You know what permaculture is talking about? What if these trees, what if the trees, instead of just, you know, maple trees or, as you say, the Bradford pears, yeah. what if your overstory were walnuts and um, hazelnuts and almonds? What if your midstory trees were all your apples and uh, pears and that kind of thing, even smaller trees under that? And then you've got uh, service berry, and you've got blueberries, and then you've got sunchokes, and you've got asparagus, and you've got... Um, um, currants and raspberries and strawberries, all of this stuff growing in the same place. It's amazing. And mixed, in and among, Go ahead. mixed in and amongst that, you have some of your annual agriculture as well. You've got your, your lettuce over here, you've got spinach over there, and you've got um, your squash growing over here, growing up through the trees. I, I love that. Um, I think that's in the in the webinar that you took as well, where we had this squash plant that went uh, wild on us. It was growing out into the yard, but it grew backwards into this uh, tree that we had. It's a uh, evergreen tree, 
And later in the summer, I come walking around the back of the tree, and here's this squash vine yep. sticking out of the side of the tree at about six feet. And I pulled the branches back, and there's a butternut squash growing at about six foot up in this evergreen tree. You know, I, I remember oh, that picture. I remember that picture, Bill, <laughs> and it, it made me. It was one of two times that I've heard things in permaculture where you have that duh moment. The first was with edges. I've been a fisherman my whole life, and I fish all these big lakes, and I spend all my time fishing shorelines, or even if you look like you're in the middle of the lake, you're fishing humps and structures because it's edge habitat. And the first time I heard about edges, I went, well, duh. And then I remember that picture. Uh, right. right. I remember that picture with you, and I had another duh moment where you said, look at the size of the leaves. This is a forest plant. And I'm like, Correct. well, maybe that's why it gets scorched out in the middle of a, you know, garden bed, completely exposed to the sun. And the other label says plant in full sun. Well, there's a reason those leaves are bigger than your head. They're, they're huge solar collectors, so they can handle that mottled shade. And beans did the same thing. You were, you're talking about that. I was like, wow, I, why don't we notice these things? And I think it's because we've stopped practicing one of the primary principles, which is observation. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And we also, we, when we think of gardening, we think of this, you know, this flat space and you go out there and garden. And the brilliance of Mollison is saying, you know, lift your eyes up. Vertical landscaping. I mean, think of what you can grow growing up. And, uh, it's phenomenal the number of things that will grow and start stacking them together. And, um, my gosh, there's, this is why uh, it's possible. That what, I, what I've been looking for, Jack, in the Midwest is some examples of people who are grow, who have been doing this for a long time, and there just are not very many examples. And the ones that I have found are really backyard examples. They're not uh, farming examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fellow, Mark Shepard, up in Wisconsin that's experimenting with it on a really large scale. But it's a huge project, and it takes you know, 20, 30 years for these trees. He's planting chestnuts and hazelnuts. It takes 20, 30 years for them to get into really full uh, overstory production. So to me, though, it's like, it's like investing. You know, whenever they send the financial advisor out who really doesn't know what he's talking about, the one thing he gets right is he says the time to start investing is now. And if you're, That's right. if you're 60... Man, I think it was last year. If you're 60, start investing now. If you're 20, start investing now because tomorrow's coming anyway. I want to get one of these. There's a question I want to make sure I get in because it came from one of my listeners, and I'm glad it's for you and not for me. Um, guy that's up in the Oregon, Washington area, they're looking for some land, and they have a pretty big family, a family of 12. And they are thinking long-term, but they're saying long-term, if we wanted to support 12 people, feed 12 people, what would be the minimum acreage you think that could be done on? And like I said, I'm glad that's your question and not mine. Well, it's all into the design. Um, the, the, what we look for is the pat answer on that, and then, you know, you just go out and say, okay, i got 12 people I need, you know, seven yeah. acres, whatever it is. Um, but the truth is, um, with stacking systems and a permaculture design, including some greenhousing, that kind of stuff, uh, you probably could get 12 people easily on um, two acres, easily grow enough food. I would agree, but, especially um, but, that's a good climate there. There's plenty of rain, as long as they're on the right side of the mountain. the rain. Yeah. Depends on their diet, too, but if they're, if they're looking at raising animals, uh, it depends on which animals they start, um, to, what, what kind of animals they choose. Um, but if I had 12 people, I would rather not have to do it on two acres. I'd like to have a little more elbow room. I certainly want a woodlot, that kind of thing. So, they, were, um, they were looking at maybe like a 10-acre piece, and I told them I thought that would be pretty good, but I would ask you. Yeah, I think that would be that would be enough. 
but they do need. But it, it all comes into design. But think about the uh, the number of people that are uh, growing massive amounts of foods in very short and very small spaces. And it makes sense, you know. Why do you have to walk, you know, quarter of a mile to get to your field? You know, why not do it right outside your your back door? I mean, one good example, they're not really doing it so much with, with it's more like French bond intensive that they're doing, but the Gervaisis out in California, they're, you know, knocking 6,000 pounds of fruit and vegetables out of a tenth of an acre. And it's just, it's yeah. phenomenal. It's hard to even con- get your head wrapped around that amount of food. And they have That's a right. business off of it. They, you know, they sell to local merchants. I heard you say, I think it was in your webinar, you said something about if you had the right greenhouse, you could actually uh, end up creating a little CSA, a little community-supported agriculture product, and, and make a decent living off of a reasonable-sized greenhouse just with a basket of food to 20 different people every week. Is that, was that well, you that's one of the things that I, I'm really passionate about is, is looking, and I wish I had more time. I have a research project I'd like to get involved in. Uh, the first, the first person who comes up to me and says, hey, Bill, here's a bunch of money, you know, uh, go, go create something permaculture-esque. It'll be a greenhouse. But, um, I, the reason being is because we live in this temperate climate zone up here in northern Illinois, and there's a lot of people living where, where it freezes every winter. And so, uh, I like the idea of creating a greenhouse where you can grow fresh, uh, produce all winter long, but you need you know you need to have sunlight. You have to have light. Uh, you have to have heat, and those are two huge expenses. And at the price of food, when you're competing against industrial agriculture coming from Southern California, you just can't uh, produce uh, oil. You know, uh, the amount of embedded energy in one gallon of oil is just phenomenal. And so, for you and I to try to compete with that uh, in our little teeny garden space, you can't do it. But uh, when the price of oil increases as it has to, um, the, the, the playing field will become level. But, you know, in the United States, we, for every calorie of food that we eat on our plate in the United States, seven to eight calories of oil went into the production, the shipping, and the packaging of that food. And that's seven or eight calories to every one calorie of food that we eat. So you, you double the price of, of oil and the price of food's got to, you know, go up um, tremendously. I think it's going to go up a lot in the next couple of years, even without a drastic increase in the price of oil, because we are having so much climate menagerie. It's a drought here. We've got the, the conditions in California with, uh, you know, they cut the water off out of the Delta. We've just got so many things going on, and there's shortages of food. It's, it's, it's only a matter of time until stockpiles kind of wear down. And supply and demand, I don't care what the government economies of the world are, how socialist or capitalist they are, supply and demand always takes effect after a certain amount of time. And as you decrease the surplus, you increase the cost. So I think it's one of the most economical things people can do. I'm with you on the greenhouse. I bought a little one of these little springhouse greenhouses last year. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world, and I grew a bunch of stuff right through the uh, Texas winters, which aren't that bad, but when it freezes, it freezes, right? It's, it, it's, a, it's a fundamental <laughs> fact, right? So if it only freezes right. for a week, uh, my, your stuff's still dead, right? So I thought this thing was great, right. and then we got a couple of our good early winter windstorms, and it collapsed upon itself. And one of my first projects in Arkansas is going to be to build a really nice uh, greenhouse and do some incorporation of not just typical greenhouse growing, but doing some aquaponics as well, which I think is a, is a really interesting topic that I decided the only way I'm going to really learn about is to get some experience with it. Bill? You know, you have uh, fish that produce... Pardon? Uh, we had lost you for a second, but you're back. Go ahead. Oh, good. I don't know what that was. It's probably a delay. I, I love the idea that... 
the uh, aquaponics or aquaculture is a great way to um, uh, stack systems. You know, we have fish that uh, eat food and they produce all this ammonia and nitrogen and then take that water, run it through a bed and have the plants suck up all that nitrogen and return the clean water back to the fish. So that's just a real simple uh, design on, uh, on efficiency. Um, and fish is a fabulous source of protein based on the amount of food given to the animals. It's a lot more productive than any land animal. They just don't have the weight or the body heat that they have to maintain. So you can grow a lot more pounds of fish per, per pound of food. So um, I love that design. Uh, you know, it's, I correct me I, if I'm wrong. I'm thinking if I build something like that and I build it big enough of a greenhouse and dedicate some of the space to aquaponics, I should get some retained heat gain from the water flow during the cooler parts of the year during the nights where I'm not getting the solar gain because all that water is going to retain heat better than air. Am I right about absolutely. that? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Absolutely. Way Absolutely. Um, you know, the water acts as a big flywheel. You know, it'll keep it from getting too hot and keep it from getting too cold. It just takes longer when you have that system in there. So water is one of the best sources of um, storing uh, heat. Can you tell um, folks about that your, you, Go ahead. Sorry. So, yeah, something you mentioned earlier on, uh, and I think it's important that we just talk about this, um, it has to do with... Uh, where do we grow food? And obviously in suburban situations, just about anywhere you can do it. But the thing that is so encouraging about Mollison's work um, is that we can actually go into very depleted areas. Um, Jeff Lawton's video, this is something when people you know sign up to be in our email list, I send them a link to this video. You can Google it as well. But Jeff Lawton did this experiment out in the desert where they took and they put in swales and they planted overstory plants and they used mulch to hold moisture in it in a desert environment, they started growing food. Um, and uh, some of Bill Mollison's videos, he shows one of these land imprinters going into the desert and or at the edge of a desert and turning a desert back into a prairie. So we, we can actually, using permaculture thinking, we can, we can reestablish and bring fertility back into almost any environment. Um, and so even in environments that are somewhat degraded, um, I look, when I drive out west to Colorado or something and I see these long open areas that still get maybe 14 inches of rain a year, which is a lot of rain compared to, you know, two to three inches in the desert, there's a tremendous amount of possibilities. There's a tremendous amount of land. There's millions and millions of acres that we could turn into agriculture that are now considered not agriculturally useful. Uh, I so agree. There is land. It is possible to feed everybody on the planet. We just have to be, be willing to do it. And we have and to start the same thing with energy. In the right direction. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. It's the same thing with energy. Um, you know, the amount of sunlight that hits this planet in a single day is more energy than all the oil that exists on the planet. Uh, and all that oil is, of course, is what? Ancient sunlight, right? It's what used to be a carbon source, whether it be bacteria, uh, algae, or, um, you know, plant matter. And it was, you know, put underground and compressed. And over a period of, um, of uh, millions of years, that carbon was turned into liquid gas or uh, coal or um, solids. And so sunlight is the source. It is what powers everything, and there is a tremendous amount of it. We just have to be smart on how we use it. So we can build buildings that last 500 years and will biodegrade and turn back to the earth. We can energize, we, we can provide the energy need 
we need for our culture from sun, but we have to design it that way. And I'm not talking about solar panels, you know, or solar-powered cars. I'm talking about the way we live. Sure. Why do we have to get in a car and drive 100 miles to work? You know, why do we have to get in a car and drive 20 miles to the grocery store? Why don't we have all these systems built within our communities? And once in a while, we travel somewhere, but we don't make it an everyday occurrence. We, we tra- travel for, for a desire rather than a necessity. And I, I think, like, some of the things you're saying, like, I've had these conversations with people before. I've said that, like, all energy is solar energy. And they're like, well, oil's not. Well, it, it is because of the things you just said. I had a guy one time when I was having that discussion. He said, well, what about wind? I said, well, what do you think makes the wind blow? Right? I mean, right. you take away the sun, and we don't have any wind. I mean, so all energy, in essence, is solar, and, and these big projects are amazing. Like the Greening the Desert video, I've talked about that on the show numerous times. It was one of the things that really made me understand how little I knew about permaculture. Again, when I thought it was my garden is my agriculture, and everything that you know, comes back every year that's perennial is my permaculture. And I saw that video, and I went, wow, there's so much I need to learn. But even on these big projects, it still comes down to what people could do in their yards. One of the things I saw that you did are what you call rain gardens in your front yard. And I've been trying to figure out how do I adapt swale technology into these little um, you know, suburban environments, especially when I have to worry about making sure that it's going to resell well because it may not, you know, I might like it, but maybe the next guy that comes in won't. What you've done with your front yard is gorgeous, and you've done something that's not really swales, but can you talk about kind of how you did that and, and, and what it does, how it works? Sure. Yeah, what, what I try to do with permaculture is, is to simplify because, you know, when you read these texts and everything, um, I've had, we've had people take design courses, not from us, of course, but um, even the course that I took, I remember coming out of it and feeling almost more confused coming out than when I went in. There's so much information, and it's so overwhelming, you don't even know where to start. And so for our courses, we, we really try to simplify things, not dumb it down. I'm talking about make it understandable. And when people leave our courses, they can hardly wait to get home to get started. So that's our biggest claim to fame, I think. For, what I'm most proud of our courses is what our students are doing. But it's the same thing for me in my front yard. It's not complicated when you talk about swales and rain gardens. All we're trying to do is slow the water down. You know, if water starts at point A and goes to point B in two seconds, you'd have no use for that water the rest of the, the rest of the time. But if if it takes the water to get from point A to point B, if it takes it a year, well, now you have a year to use that water instead of it all being gone in two seconds. So in 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 our yard, all I'm doing is, in a sense, instead of having a flat lawn, what I'm doing is turning my lawn into what maybe looks a little bit more like um, an egg carton technologically speaking, an egg carton. What I'm trying to do is create pockets in my yard so when water shows up, um, it stays for a while. It sits there and slowly soaks into the ground, and I can use it by planting around that little depression. I can use that water for a long period of time rather than have it just disappear. And you dug these and holes, the other thing that w- right? You dug these holes, and you took the, 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 the material out of the holes, and then you put this mm-hmm. berm along your property line. And I remember looking at that picture... And I'm going, I wonder how his neighbor feels about the berm on the property line. But then you planted it, and a year later, it's this beautiful, almost like natural green, sort of like a hedge slash little, you know, non-obstructive fence. 
And I was like, it's amazing what you can do as long as you can get your neighbor to give you a season to work with. And it, it seemed like it only took about a season for, not for it to mature, but for it to really look good. I mean, your front yard's gorgeous. That's it looks correct. like a, you know, a, a garden, but a garden, a, a natural garden, not a, you know, a formal garden. Exactly. And that's what's the funniest thing about it is, it looks beautiful, and we're producing food. And I'm thinking to myself, why would I ever want to have a plain flat lawn and just mow it? And um, my next-door neighbor happens to be my father, and he's so cute because he doesn't get it at all. You know, he's yeah. like, you can't get in there with a lawnmower, you know. just I don't and, have uh, to. <laughs> and, he sees, <laughs> and he sees our rain gardens. And, uh, you know, we have we host uh, uh, courses right here in our community. Some of the courses we do, we do in our community. And so people can come over here and, you know, help me in my yard. And, you know, we, we're transforming other people's yards in our community here. But um, uh, my dad gets a kick out. He says, you mean those people are paying you just to dig a, to, teach, to learn how to dig a damn hole in your yard? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, Dad, it's a little more than that. But that's what it looks like. Yeah. And, yeah. and what was neat is, is, is we have, uh, we, our house is very conventional in, in the sense that it sits in the middle of the lot, and then everything is graded away from the house, so the water comes off the roof, comes down, and moves away from the house. It's, it's a good design to keep water away from, you know, foundations. But I want to keep the water on the land where I can use it, and so... Um, I've got, I blocked one of my downspouts so that all the water from two-thirds of the roof has to come down this one downspout. And from there, I dug a channel so the water follows that channel. And off that channel, I put in three rain gardens. And they kind of take a, make a horseshoe shape around the front of my yard. So now all this water comes off the roof, works its way down, fills rain garden number one, works its way down rain garden number two, overflows to rain garden number three. And then when that overflows, it hits this berm that I created, and the water travels down along the side of that berm, soaking into the ground and soaking into the berm all the way along. Excuse me. <coughs> so, in effect... Uh, am I still there, Jack? You're still here, yeah. Okay. In effect, what what's happening is instead of the water coming down and wicking away from the house, I've created this giant horseshoe shape that the water has to journey along. And at this point, I have never experienced a rain event in the last two and a half years where there's been so much rain that the water has made it all the way to the end of the berm and around the corner. So all the water that is now landing on our roof and in our front yard is staying in our front yard. And it takes about three days for the water to soak into the ground. The rain, these uh, rain gardens are only about 10, 12 inches deep. There you have 45-degree slope sides, and they're kind of flat-bottomed. And I've got some prairie grasses that are starting to grow in there, and I've got some um, clover that's growing in there. And uh, new this year, I started experimenting with... Um, with comfrey because it's a fantastic, uh, what we call a dynamic accumulator. It has a very deep root system, and it pulls minerals up, puts the minerals on the leaves, and I take those leaves and use them as mulch around the garden. So so we're creating this kind of uh, system that's becoming more and more fertile every year, and it's producing more and more food every year, and yet it requires very little work on our on our part. And when I say little work, I guess I have to be careful about this because you know, I used to go out into my garden, and that felt like work. You know, you're in rows, and you're in the sun, and you're on your knees, and that felt like work. But when I'm in my front yard, it's um, 
it's a little bit shady. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the birds love our front yard now. We're getting a lot of free organic matter and uh, mm-hmm. nutrients, nitrogen, just from the bird poop that's landing in our yard. So, um, anyway, I'm enjoying it a lot, and it seems to it, it makes a lot of sense to me, and it seems to be working. I want to start to try to move for the end here. We're, we're kind of eating up the hour, but. Um there is a few more things I want to cover, and it's my show, and it's pre-recorded, so we can go along. So we'll do that if, you, if you'll if sure. you'll hang with us. Um, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you, you know, we are a survivalist community here. That that's what we're all about. But we're also a community. We're not. I mean, I think people hear the word survivalist, they think of isolationists and some guy out in the middle of nowhere. And, and in a way, I mean, that's kind of like how Bill Molson started out. He got tired of everything. He got tired of being part of the system. He opted out. He went away. And um, I remember listening, I don't remember what interview it was, where I was listening to him talk about that time in his life. And he said, while I was out there and I started to understand the systems around me, and this is what made him my hero, he said, I decided I would fight the bastards. Right? And I was like, wow, this, this, guy's, this guy's charged up. And he came back and he, you know, part of the whole permaculture concept is building community. And that's what we've tried to do. No man is an island. If you want to survive, you're not going to do that on, on your own. Humans are social animals. Can you kind of talk about how important community is to permaculture concepts beyond, you know, giving the neighbor a bag of tomatoes once in a while, really trying to make it more encompassing and, and bringing more people kind of into the, into the, the, the realm of understanding, so to speak? Yeah, I think it's essential. Um, you know, in the uh, the transition town movement or transition town initiative that's coming out of the UK last two or three years, it's really a permaculture based movement, and it really came from the realization that you know if we try to do this, or if we if we try to wait for government to to wake up and see what's going on and make the necessary changes, it'll be too little, too late. If we try to do it ourselves, it'll be too little. You know, if you got it all and you're trying to hoard it and protect it, you know, someone's going to get you. But if we do it together, if we do it as community, there's a chance we might be able to do just enough, just in the right amount of time. The safest place to be is to have a group of people or neighbors where everybody has different skills and experience levels and is willing to share and is willing to keep an eye out for one another. That is the safest most secure place any of us could ever be. And you've just, that is you've what just described the survivalist community. That's exactly what you've described. And I think it goes back to what I've always said, that like our, uh, the, all the things that I talk about doing, our grandparents and great-grandparents did them. And no one called that survivalism. It's just what you did because we didn't have so many of these crutches of modern society to lean on. And it wasn't easy to do nothing and get away with it. You had you had to do something. You had to have some part in your community. The people around you had to see value. And if, if somebody fell, everybody would rally around and help pick them back up and get them going again. But since it was done at a community level, if you were kind of a, a, a vagrant and didn't do anything, when you fell, you were left until you started trying. And, and no one was coming in and, and picking people up that wanted to be on the ground. And I think that is... Really, when I, when I look at permaculturists, I see people that are action-oriented individuals. They're doing something. And, and that action will spread much faster than words. Because you can tell somebody something, and, and if they're not on board with you when they're hearing, if you're not preaching to the choir, so to speak, they're like, okay, I've heard enough of your crap. But when they see the results, that wins people over. That makes people take action. Well, you know, Jack, I think just as... Um 
you know, from our grandparents' time when they knew how to grow food and how to preserve it, and they were more neighborly. Um, we've lost all those skills. We're, we, many people say we're the dumbest um, generation that's ever existed on the planet. We don't know how. We can barely tie our shoes anymore, you know. Um, but it, we, we lost these skills of how do we relate to the environment and use the environment to grow the food, provide the shelter, provide the, the energy that we need. We've also lost our ability to uh, understand what common unity is or community is. We've lost patience. We've lost a sense of, of um, care and respect for others. Um, I mean, I'm talking uh, as um, in, across the culture. It's really, you know, I want what I want, and I want it now. I don't want anybody in my way. And um, if they are in my way, I'll just move them, you know. Um, I get a kick out of the suburban situation. You really don't have to get along with your neighbor. If you got a fast garage door opener, you can just get in and out, and you, know, you don't ever have to talk to anybody. So that's a skill that we have to relearn as well. And it really comes at the heart of, of community is that concept of common unity. We have to look, stop looking at ourselves as if we all made enough money, we could afford everything we needed, we'd have our island, nobody would ever bother us, and, and we'd be fine. But I can't tell you the number of people that have come to our courses who've gone back to the land, they got their five acres, they built their house, they got their little animals, they got their gardens, they worked like dogs for five years, they finally get a system going, and one morning they wake up and they go, why did we do this? Where is everybody? Where's community? All we have is each other. But where is everybody else? They become, you know, what was the reason we did this? We didn't do this to become totally independent of everybody. We did it because we knew it was the right thing to do. So I think we're at the point where we need to start doing that together as groups in like the group of 12 people in Oregon. My ideal community would be 35 to 50 people. You um, build 10 or 12 houses together. They're um, made out of the very earth underneath your feet, you know, using the, um, um, the uh, 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 you know, a cob construction or the earth bag construction. Uh, houses that everybody can help make. They're relatively small to start with. You have common areas where you can share, and you have um, um, animals, and you have gardens, and you put in permaculture gardens, and you have one place where you have a common library. You've got two or three automobiles and a truck and a van, and people can share those vehicles when they need them. Um, but everybody doesn't have to own a car. You don't have to own every piece of equipment and every single tool. So now our costs of living go way, way, way downtown. Everything is paid for. Uh, you're not in debt to anything, and you're providing the food that you need, and even the farming operation. I mean, who wants to be a dairy farmer? You know, where you have to, you know, I met a guy who was a dairy farmer for so many years, decades, and he didn't miss a milking for 24 years. Wow. wow. Can you imagine that? Every morning, every evening, 24 years, never missed a milking. He never it, went it, anywhere. It, to me, some of, some of the, the, the problems with modern agriculture are, are not just the, the byproducts, the, the converting fertile land into desert. I mean, that's bad enough, but the, the human toll for the farmer, the, the, the little farmer, the guy with the 40 acres that farms traditionally or the 80 acres that farms traditionally, they're the hardest working poor people I know in the world. And, and it's sad that the people that are feeding people are poor, but part of it is not 
that we don't respect the farmer. It's that the entire system is now set up that it that it'll as long as you stay in that system, it creates poor farmers. That's the only thing it can create. If it wasn't for the subsidies that we have that do their own damage down the down, down the road and throughout the world, the, the guy wouldn't even be able to stay on the land that he's on. But if they break that right. mold, if they'll if they'll take a little bit of courage, take ten acres and give it a shot, and yet yeah, it might take a while, but long term. We can take people that are poor farmers and make them maybe not wealthy farmers, but maybe make them so self-sufficient that money becomes less of a necessity. And I think that's right. part of why I don't think the government likes this stuff. Honestly, I I don't. I'm not waiting on government to fix it because I don't even think government will incompetently attempt to fix it. I don't think they want to. I think the government loves. The concept of dependence, because that's how they stay in power, that's how they get bigger and bigger. And once the government gets so big, it can only grow by creating need for itself. And what we're talking about doing with permaculture, to me, is removing that need and removing all the fears that go along with those needs. If you can get a person and they can feed themselves and they can clothe themselves, they can produce a a, a modicum of their own energy, and they have a a home that because they're not spending money on all these other things we're supposed to need that's paid for, I don't really need you for much, you know. And, and now, if I create a community that way, now I've got real strength and I've got the absence of fear. And to me, that's part of what makes... Everything that's going on um, in in the, the the permaculture world is so exciting that we're we're taking away dependence and we're replacing it with not really independence, but I guess it'd be more of a community based interdependence. All right, and I think it's an important thing to talk about that in relationship to permaculture. Permanent culture is what we're talking about here. How do you create permanent culture? And if you and I try to do everything ourselves. Uh, there's been a lot of people that have done that, or even as a couple. Um, there's so many skills you have to learn. You will work all the time to be able to have, you know, pickles and and all preservatives and a root cellar and all this other kind of stuff. It just takes time to do everything. But within the context of community, I think it's possible for us through division of labor, through division of labor, through sharing uh, our skills with one another, that it's possible to create a very good living. In other words, all the food, all the shelter, all the clothing, all the uh, energy you need to be able to be safe and secure and warm and, and cool, we can provide all that working about four hours a day. I think that's, that's, I think that's possible, too. That I is think possible. That, I think that you're keying on a very important word there, sharing. And one of my fundamental principles is sharing can only occur between equals. If, if it's between, if it's if it's my stuff taken away from me by somebody with more power than me to give to somebody else, that's not sharing to me. That's theft. But when you start building communities like this and everybody's actively involved, it's it's so. I think human beings by nature are not stingy. I think that fear creates the greed, the stinginess, and things like that. And fear is what drives that. When we remove that, I think people naturally share things with each other and I, I think that maybe the, the you know my community that I've built and, and, the, and the communities around the concept of survivalism are maybe seen as being the people that, that are hoarders or whatever but really what we are are people that are out there trying to prevent more things than we're trying to, uh, to be prepared for um, I do think we do need to kind of wrap up now um, Bill there's about 10,000 people a day listen to this show and the best estimate I have is last year, about 10% of the people that listened started a garden. 
So we created about a thousand gardens over the, the last year. And I mean, these are people that are taking action. They're doing something. But a lot of them are like, where do I go next? What do I do next? And you know how it is. When you start, you come across adversity. You have some encouragement to keep these folks motivated. Well, I do. And I think the encouragement is it's the only way. Um, don't don't think that you have – we've taken skills that we've lost in the last two generations that were carried on from generation to generation for millennium. And so for you for you or for us to try to think that we have to learn everything overnight, um, it's, just, it's, it's just not reasonable. So, so the answer to me is do what you can where you can. Follow those things that you love to do and become very good at that and then share that skill with others and let them share their skill with you. I really think our strength is going to be in working together uh, with one another, finding ways to create uh, a sense of cooperation and, um, and sharing. So um, it, it seems it seems daunting at first, but it's amazing. I've never had this experience of feeling more confident um, by being. But, but 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 when I go out there and actually do this work, plant my own gardens, harvest my own food. Uh, last night I was drinking wine. Actually, it was mead, uh, mugwort mead. That uh, me and my friend uh, Milton, he's our technology guy here. He's a young man, and he was here for our design course in October. And we made this mugwort wine. And I got a little bit high last night drinking a pint of wine, you know, from local sources. Uh, it does not have to be complicated. And um, does it taste like uh, the best stuff in the world? Heck no. It tastes kind of odd. <laughs> but you know what? I made it, and it tastes really good. So, um, it's, I mean, what else? The point is, what else are we going to do? Tomorrow, we all have to get up in the morning, and we can either work at trying to create a world that works for everybody or just stay unconscious or work against it. The point is, it is possible. It's possible to live well on this planet. It's possible to create a culture that is abundant and joyous. It's possible. It sounds Pollyannish. It sounds almost um, juvenile. The point is, it's still a possibility. And we as humans can choose to move in that direction or not. And that's all I'm doing. I think that's all you're doing, Jack, is we're just getting up the next morning and just saying, well, what else am I going to do? You know, I can either just go unconscious and watch TV or I can just try to do something about it. So I'm going to fight the bastards. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. I, I, can, I You know, when I hear you say it, I can hear the belief in your voice. I hear the passion in your voice. And I think that's what people need to hear and, and take into their own lives and make part of their own lives. And, and I'm with you, man. I'm going to fight them all the way. Um, I, I do want to give you a, a chance here at the end to tell people, you know, how they can find out more about Midwest permaculture, what kind of courses you offer. Make sure you tell them about the fact they can take the webinar without doing the full certification. That's kind of what I'm doing now because I don't have the time to set aside right now to do the, uh, the week. So sure. you give people kind of like how do they find you, what can they take, what do you recommend people do to get All right. more knowledge because well, without the knowledge, it ain't going to happen. The first thing I do want to tell everybody is you don't need a design course in order to learn permaculture. Um, most of what I know about permaculture I learned before I did a design course. So don't get stuck in this trap that you think you got to find the time and the money to take a design course. It's not the only way to learn. Jack's program is an excellent source of good information, and the Internet is the other great source. Uh, your best learning ex um, uh, lesson is in doing things and learning from experience. Um, 
but however, we do know a lot of us do like to learn. We like concentrated learning. We like an environment. We have like-minded people together. And so that's what our design courses are for, people who just want it a lot in a short period of time. Uh, we think we really have one of the, the best courses out there that um, – that delivers that kind of concentrated information. Now, the design course is a 72-hour program. Like I said, most of them run two weeks. Ours runs one week because we did these 12 hours of webinars, actually 14 hours of uh, webinars ahead of time. And so those are now recorded. Jack's taking those. And so those are available to everybody. And anyone who wants to do that, this is a real good, solid foundational understanding in permaculture. It's 14 hours. It's uh, 195 bucks, And so you can just order that and take the course. It includes over 24 handouts. It includes the uh, textbook, Earth Teacher's Guide to Permaculture, and the 12 hours webinars. And if, someone, and if that person then decides in the future, well, I really want to take a design course now, the entire $195 can be applied towards a future design course uh, for up to three years. So... Um, so you know money out if you end up taking a design course anyway. Uh, the other thing we're offering uh, new is a four-day suburban urban training for people who live in the suburbs. They don't need design certification. They don't need the whole kit and caboodle. They don't need to know what to do in a desert or in a mountain. Um, what they want to know is what to do in their own backyard. Well, that's what this four-day suburban urban training is for, and we'll have three or four of those trainings uh, this year. The first one is in Detroit in, uh, in April. But all that information can be found on our website. Um, thanks for linking, folks, Jack, on your website to ours, but it's simply just MidwestPermaculture.com. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Um, Bill, thank you so much for, uh, for being on today's show. I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to be here with us. My pleasure, Jack, and thanks again for the work that you're doing. I'm uh, very inspired by your work, so um, keep, keep it up. Well, well, thank you, and, and folks, I want to I want to impress upon you um, how you look at a, a design cor- or a, a, the the webinar course at 195 bucks. You go, is it worth it? Um, I'm halfway through it. I've got my money worth already. It is, um, and and I eat, live, and breathe this stuff. I'm looking for more information every day to share with you guys, and uh, I'm learning things left and right. And I'm, I'm, I'm the biggest thing I'm getting is I'm seeing pictures of things that were done elsewhere and diagrams and drawings and I think one of the biggest things that you can do to learn more about anything I don't care if it's permaculture, I don't care if it's cars, look at things that other people have done and then see how you can apply them where you are and and, and the photography alone uh, in just the first introductory course that you did Bill was was just uh, it really, it, it just showed me so many possibilities that I had not thought of before they're not complicated it's just you see it once and you go now i can take that like a piece of a puzzle and plug it in somewhere else so i'll tell you what guys if you're if you're looking for a start it's 195 bucks well spent that said i am going to wrap up now uh biggest thing i hope you take away today like you take away every day what i tell you what my guests tell you that's all just information you assemble that information any way that you want any way that you see fit but take action in your own life own your own plan whether it's a plan to prepare for disaster whether it's a plan to protect your assets whether it's a plan to prepare to build a food forest in your backyard own your plan because my plan won't work for you You have to have personal ownership of it with that this has been jack spirico and bill wilson today helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't 
Well, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Survival Podcast Friday Flashbacks. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You can also support our show by going to TSPAZ, that's T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAZ.com. Anytime you shop online, and while you'll support us no matter what you buy, you will find over 500 reviews of items I have personally tested and vouch for. And to stay in touch with us and never miss anything... Follow our channel or our group on Telegram. You can find links to that and all our social media options. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and check the show notes for any episode.